0: terms apply. Purchases must be on card. Visit go.mx slash you know.
1: The Bowery Boys episode 101. The Bronx Zoo. Hey, it's the Bowery Boys. Hey. The
0: Bowery Boys is brought to you by Eurocheapo.com. Eurochipo editors, per- Visit and review the best budget hotels in Europe, now with hotels in New York City, on the web at Eurocheapo.com.
1: Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Bowery Boys. This is Greg Young. And this is Tom Myers. I have emerged from my own personal technological black hole, which... uh, What happened, Greg? My computer sort of, like, up and died one day, uh, about two and a half weeks ago, so I was not able to do a solo show. The blog has been a little slow Um, But just as of last night, I've pulled myself out of it, and we are ready to do a new show. We could blame it on Robert Moses. Maybe it was just um, my equipment was overloaded from all of that. So, um, (laughs) and yeah, and he he personally came and drove an expressway through my computer.
0: (laughs) So we're taking it a little bit easier on ourselves, and on you, dear listener, this week, uh, with a subject that's a little more lighthearted.
1: We're, of course, talking about the Bronx Zoo, one of the city's great institutions. has been in existence for over 110 years. I would say next to maybe or alongside of the San Diego Zoo, it's probably America's best known zoo or zoological park, as they used to call them.
0: It's certainly the largest with Four thousand animals waiting for you to visit them up in the Bronx
1: from a size of an elephant to the size of a hissing cockroach Tom mm. a hissing cockroach and they have oh, dozens and dozens The Wildlife Conservation Society as they like to be known, actually comprises all of the zoos in New York City um, and they are also nearly. Nearly all. Nearly all of them. We'll get to that. I'm sure you'll explain that. They're also, of course, on the forefront of animal conservation internationally. We'll give you a little bit of a history of the area before the zoo got there, how it became a park, and some of the more notable structures and inhabitants that have resided there over the past 110 years.
0: Let's go to the zoo.
1: Now, on to the curious tell of New York's biggest zoo, Bronx Zoo. Why don't you give us the main main details, the directions, what it is, where it's at? Uh,
0: The Bronx Zoo is located inside the Bronx Park, which is in the Bronx borough of New York. It's the largest zoo in the U.S. with 4,000 animals from 600 species. And it's located on 265 acres in this park, the Bronx Park. And the zoo is located just south of the New York Botanical Gardens. Actually, Greg and I have both just visited the the zoo in
1: the past couple of weeks. The springtime crowds have now arrived there. And the zoo is sort of ramping up for the new season.
0: It is not New York's only zoo. And we'll get to some of the other zoos at the end of the show.
1: Before we jump in feet first into the history of the zoo itself, I want to give a little background backdrop of what's this area was because, of course, it wasn't the Bronx borough. Um, The zoo opened in 1899. The consolidation of New York was only in 1898. Mm. So mid-19th century and before that. Don't think of this as an area of New York at all. In fact, don't even think of it as a, quote, the Bronx because it wasn't a unified area. Think of it as just sort of part of Westchester County, New York, not part of the city proper. This was, of course, very bucolic farmland with uh, small towns, villages, hamlets. And Lady Macbeth's. Not Macbeth's, but in fact, one of the dominating families of this particular area of the Bronx, around the Bronx River, because that's uh, that's where the zoo and the botanical garden are sort of surrounding mm-hmm. the Bronx River. The Delancey family. Uh-huh. I believe you may know this family. They were a huge oh. landowner. And of course, there's a big street in the lower side called Delancey, which is named after the family. The Delancey family owned a huge estate in this particular area. During the Revolutionary, where they were pro-British. After the war, the Delancey family fled the area and their land holdings were confiscated. A man by the name of Philip Leidig then came in and bought some of this area around here. He was a baker, Tom. He was actually known for baking sea biscuits, manufacturing them, this food for, then for ship crews to they can send out and they can eat them on these, voy- these long voyages, these long trading voyages. So he and his son and his grandson, the whole Leidig family, actually mm-hmm. bought these flour mills. So the area of the – where the Bronx Zoo used to be – the Leidig family owned a lot of this and had a lot of their mills here. So around the mid-19th century, you had all these small little towns like West Farms and Bronxdale, and it was a very quiet place to live. There were estates everywhere. And it was so quiet. It was so nice. It was so peaceful that it was a nice place to build a Jesuit college. So in fact, in in, uh, 1841, St. John's College was founded in this area. They would later change their name to Fordham, Mm -hmm. which of course is a major uh, educational institution here in New York City. City.
0: And this was outside New York City limits, and so it was as if families were sending their children off to a, a university in the countryside.
1: It was a very yes, a peaceful, leafy respite. In fact, um, a friend of the of St. John's called a friend of the organization was one Edgar Allan Poe, who lived just a few blocks away from where the college is. Hmm. I know that we always say 1898 as the magic date of consolidation. You know, I, in fact, I just mentioned it. Right. But, in fact, for some parts of the Bronx, that's, they were already incorporated into New York City well before then. In fact, th- that's the fate of this particular area. In 1874, all of the western Bronx, which included Kingsbridge, West Farms, and Morrisonia, those areas that were west of the Bronx River, they were... Annexed to become part of New York in 1874. In fact, they were called the Annex District of the Bronx. Now, keep in mind that the, the Bronx name as a borough didn't exist yet what it's referring to is the river, because it's everything west of the Bronx River. So that's actually why we call the borough the Bronx, because it's sort of a shortening of the river. Um, The area was also sometimes called the Great North Side.
0: But of course, we should also mention Jonas Bronck, for whom the river is named as well.
1: Yes, the Jonas Bronck was the original settler in this area during the Dutch period, um, who met an unfortunate fate. The River takes his name and as it went from Bronx to Bronx over the generations. Now, we're talking the era where Central Park and Prospect Park have just opened. People love them. They can't get enough of these parks, of course, because the whole city is wildly overcrowded. So citizens are caught up in this fervor of mm-hmm. building more parks. All of a sudden, you have all of this land that's been granted to. New York. As a result, throughout the next decade, all of these great Bronx parks are commissioned and constructed. Parks like the then Cortland Park, Pelham Bay Park, these are undeveloped spaces. This, this isn't like a well-manicured park like Central Park is. This really captures the original topography and landscape of what it originally looked like. And you can kind of still see that today, even though with places, of course, like the Bronx Park, it's heavily developed with the Botanical Garden and with the zoo, of course. Right. Bronx Park was officially opened in 1884 and was situated around this one portion of the Bronx River. Now you this is a beautiful park you have surrounded by beautiful parks up here, but what exactly to do with it like how how did a zoo get right here in this area
0: well let 's also remember that at this time, the country has expanded uh, into new territories out west, which we do not need to get into in this podcast but there's there 's an increasing knowledge of wildlife, of animals from the West, of animals that are being hunted, maybe animals that are starting to disappear from the landscape, and of man's impact on the land. So there's an increasing awareness of this. There's also an increasing interest in the study of animals in zoology. The Central Park Menagerie mm-hmm. was started in the 1860s. So th- people were already familiar with studying animals and, and visiting them as well, to a certain extent. In April 1894, 5. New York State chartered the New York Zoological Society. This would remain the group's name until 1993, when it would change its name to Wildlife Conservation Society. So that's a recent development. That's very recent. Hmm. So we're talking about the New York Zoological Society. The group was dedicated to, of course, the formation of a zoological park Mm -hmm. or a zoo, but also it was intended to promote and conserve wildlife. The, The founding members of this were also sort of a who's who of New York philanthropists and big names at the dawn. Now, you asked why they were drawn to the Bronx Park. One thing that the New York Zoological Society was looking for in, in placing a zoo was land that they wouldn't have to manipulate very much. They were, I think, kind of progressive. I was expecting, when I went into the research, thinking, oh, I'm going to find some dreadful tales of sterile cages and bars and you know, mm-hmm. chimpanzees sitting there looking terribly sad. Glum. But they were already concerned at the time with finding a landscape that would match as well as possible environments that they were used to in their natural setting. In this Bronx park, they saw lots of rocks, hills, different kinds of formations that were reminiscent of the natural habitats
1: of these animals. And that's very ambitious. That's, we're talking like Africa, Asia, South America. Yes. Sculpt, sculpting that out of the Bronx, essentially.
0: The first director of the zoo was a man named William Temple Hornaday. Now, he was a zoologist, a conservationist, an author, a poet. He sang, he he danced, he <laughs> did everything.
1: One of these Renaissance men, of course.
0: Yes, in 1877 and seventy. He traveled throughout India, Borneo, Malaysia, collecting species to bring back with him to the U.S. And he served actually as a head of taxidermy at the U.S. National Museum until 1890 and actually helped found the Smithsonian Museum in Washington.
1: I find it interesting that you have all of these leaders of the zoological movement Mm -hmm. also have their hand in, like, Taxidermy and hunting, huntsmen. Mm -hmm. Like at this particular time, they're just seen as two different sides of the same coin, essentially, right?
0: Well, and actually, you know, where did these animals come from that were in the first zoos? Some were donated by wealthy patrons uh, like Carnegie, who would be giving lions to the zoo. Some were given by mad eccentrics, like we talked about in the Central Park Uh Zoo podcast, people who thought that they could just keep a tiger up in their apartment on Madison Avenue until they realized that (laughs) their mistress had been mauled in the shower, and then they would donate it to the zoo. And others were given by hunters who had, you know, collected a tiger. So back to Hornaday. He was appointed the first director of the New York Zoological Park in 1896. Mm -hmm. The group hired the architecture firm of Heinz and Lafarge to work on... On what we call today the Astor Court section mm-hmm. of the park, which is sort of the main collection of exhibition halls and the Sea Lion Pool.
1: Do you know if you if you want to see other examples of their work, the most accessible, believe it or not, are subway stations. Yes. The two kind of oldest subway stations in Manhattan the one that's on 72nd Street and Broadway, and the one that's down at Battery Park, those really old, super fancy, very ornate subway stations.
0: Right, for the IRT, for the Interborough Rapid Transit. They also did major portions of the Cathedral of St. John the Divine Mm. on the Upper West Side. So they would design various pavilions and exhibit halls at the zoo. Now, the first day that the zoo opened, November 8th, 1899... Visitors found 22 exhibits featuring 843 animals. That's a
1: good collection.
0: Yeah, uh, you know. Not bad at all. I oh. mean, bigger than some other zoos in the country today.
1: On the first day, what would I have seen if I was a small child on the first day of this new zoological park?
0: Well, you would have seen a reptile house that was... There were two houses uh, that were opened. One of them, the Reptile House in 1899, was based on another in the London Zoo, uh, which was also designed by the firm.
1: This is actually the oldest structure in the zoo, correct? This is still standing.
0: Yeah, it's a lovely Beaux-Arts building, extremely popular obviously. There were cages with snakes in sort of Painted natural settings, you can just imagine. (laughs) It was so popular and people got sort of, you know, pulses quickened as they saw these slithering snakes in their boxes and people were standing behind bars, you know, sort of like peering over looking at boxes stacked atop each other. There's a fun photo, and I'm sure you'll put things on Mm -hmm. the blog, of these sort of stacks of boxes of snakes. They had to play soft music in the background to sort of soothe the visitor's souls.
1: We can see Snakes and, and spiders and things on television and in movies all the time. So we're a little desensitized to their shape. But if right. you've never seen any of these before, it can be quite horrifying.
0: Now, another building that was open was the Aquatic Bird House, another beautiful building with a natural water exhibit with ducks, flamingos, birds. There were cages inside and also outside. Now, as you strolled about the park, you'd also notice lots of cages that were actually built into the rocks. So, for example, the bears, the bear cages uh, for the grizzly bears, the black bear, polar bear, the brown bears. These bears were outside, but there were bars that barred off area in the park because, remember, they were using the rocks from the park, which gave it a more natural and realistic setting.
1: Except when you're putting polar bears there also, but
0: whatever. <laughs> that's, that's just a bear. Now, in 1901, the Primate House opened, which was, again, covered in beautiful decorative... Fr- freezes and today this is called the monkey house the lion house opened in 1903 it's the longest building also designed by heinz and lafarge uh that had raised cages along the exterior so that it was actually facing the court the central court with skylights on the inside as well so that they could get sun and they could roll on their backs and sun themselves and they had rocks and things inside their cages as well
1: On April 19, 1995, a federal building in Oklahoma City was destroyed in a domestic terrorist attack. Just days after the bombing, America discovered the perpetrator was right-wing extremist Timothy McVeigh, whose mindset and values are still very present today. It's an American tragedy, but one I still remember very vividly. Now, do you know about the Rocking Stone, Greg? Now, this is over in the sort of the center of the park, correct? Yeah,
0: a forty-ton pink granite rock that actually rocked about an inch back and forth. And so, people, if they if they applied you know about seventy pounds of pressure to a certain spot, this giant boulder would rock back and forth. It sounds positively dangerous.
1: It's thousands of years old. The there were lots of ancient. Indian legends um, related to the rock. The Delancey family, of course, who owned the property, would take their visitors to, to the Rocking Stone.
0: And you'd have to find sort of the magic spot. Is that it?
1: Yes. Now, you can't do that anymore because, of course, being a, a liability <laughs> inside of a, a public place to have this rock that's delicately balanced. Maybe one day someone will push it over and, you know, like half a family is crushed uh, by it.
0: I... There was also a Rocking Stone restaurant just beyond it, which was opening through the 1940s. And... Notably, in the middle of all of these buildings, still there today, the Sea Lion Pool opened in 1906. And that was a big oval-shaped pool with artificial rocks that had been constructed so that the seals could climb up and they could bark away and they
1: could sun themselves on their backs. And it should be noted that the Central Park Zoo is also centered around a sea lion pool. Yeah, they're really center stage, these sea lions. <laughs> well, they're, they're, they're natural performers. Now, another significant collection that they had here, Tom, is the, their bisons, their American buffaloes yes. that were here. Heavily endangered species in the 1900s. They had been completely hunted out of existence in the West. In fact, in the year 1884, there were only documented to be a thousand of them still alive and there had been 60 million. So at the zoo was formed the American Bison Society in 1905 and Hornaday himself was a member as well as President Theodore Roosevelt. They raised funds to develop bison ranges around the country and this is also the first real clue of them being involved in endangered species but also sort of branching out beyond their own borders. So they had their own population of bison here at the Bronx Zoo. In 1907 they they took 15 of these And they shipped them to Oklahoma. And then three years later, they shipped more to Montana. In 1913, they even shipped some to South Dakota. Were they just reproducing so quickly? They were having success with them reproducing, which is not easy in a zoo environment, especially back then. So today's population of American buffalo can be traced to this little community here at the Bronx Zoo. And it's because of the efforts of the men who worked at the Bronx Zoo that that we still have these creatures today and we can still see them. So the zoo was a smash. It was one of the top five or six public institutions in New York in, you know, in the very first part of the 20th century. You know what's funny, though, is Hornaday hated, hated the name Bronx Zoo. He thought it was, quote, undignified, offensive, injurious, totally unnecessary and inexcusable
0: which part the bronx part of the zoo part well, he, was he, more into the zoological well,
1: park? it seemed too slang for him at the time right i think he wanted to be associated with new york so great successes a lot of things that came out of the zoo at this time influenced uh, many other zoological parks throughout the country it wasn't without its share of Problems and controversies, though. And just in 1902, I mean, just a few years after it opened, a seven-month-old Mexican panther actually gnawed its way out of its cage and escaped, trumped through Bronx Park, and then – Assaulted a group of picnickers oh. and, and probably was more frightened of them. I mean, there was no serious injuries, but of course, the newspapers made a big, uh, Splash a about big, that. big drama about this. He was later caught by farmers, all of them wielding pitchforks who mm-hmm. were out trying to find him. But this is, of course, not even, by far, not even the biggest controversy of the early days of the zoo. I think that distinction would have to go to a certain Otabenga.
0: Well, yes, you're probably right. The curious tale, the sad, unimaginable today story of Otabenga. He was a a member of a tribe who lived in what is... Today, the Democratic Republic of Congo it was mm-hmm. a Belgian Congo at the time, and the king of Belgium was making this push to exploit the area's rubber. Well, Ota was out hunting one day, and when he returned, he found that his tribe had been slaughtered, including oh. his wife and his two children. So, he, and he himself was an enslaved and was to be sold. Now, Ota was four foot 11, 103 pounds, but very Personable and very particular look to Oda. He had his teeth filed down, mm-hmm. like, to sharp points. At this time, in 1904, uh, there was an American businessman and a missionary named Samuel Phillips Werner. Now, he was traipsing about Africa on a mission to round up some locals and bring them back for the St. Louis World's Fair. They were putting on an exhibition of, quote, all the world's people. You can just imagine how oh, politically no. incorrect inclo- this was. <laughs> of course, Th- they they wanted to find the Biggest people, the smallest people, the most colorful people—people sure. people of varying colors and skin types—and the whole thing, just to show visitors to the St. Louis World's Fair like the wide range of human <laughs> beings that were out there as well.
1: But of course, they were. It was done in a sort of zoological park format.
0: This was also at the time when Darwin's theories were starting to really hit the scene and cause huge controversies, especially with ministers. So that's sort of. The setting of Oda Benga coming back to okay. the U.S. He was sold to Werner uh, Vern- for actually just a, a bolt of cloth and some salt.
1: And this is the 20th century we're
0: talking about here. This was, was like <laughs> 105 years ago. Okay. Yeah. Oda actually convinced four other pygmies and five villagers to join him on this trip to St. Louis, and like okay. it would be you know kind of fun. And anyway, Werner needed a village, a, in a little village of savages. In St. Louis, the group was a, a big hit, although they were sort of provoked and cajoled and encouraged to act more like these savages. So they sort of started to play up to the stereotypes that were expected of them. Mm -hmm. After the World's Fair, Werner and Oda Bengo returned to Africa to return all of the others, but Oda decided to stay with Werner and traveled back to the U.S. with him. Now, back in the U.S., what was Werner going to do with Oda? Well, he needed a place for him to live, and so he actually arranged for him to live at the Museum of Natural History, On the Upper West Side. Had a little room for him there. And he got him a job there, Greg, um, and provided him with a little white duck suit that he would wear (laughs) and walk around and pose.
1: Oh, no. Uh, A duck suit.
0: I mean, it's it's strange, um, but he was, again, a big attraction. But soon he felt himself a little bit trapped there. He couldn't leave. He wanted to get out onto the streets and the guards would keep him inside. He started acting up. He actually pretended to, at a charity event one evening, he pretended to misunderstand an order, barked at him, and he threw a chair at the wall, narrowly missing Florence Guggenheim's head. Oh. and Which was a big no. No, no, of course. So they needed to find a new place for Oda to live. So in 1906, Werner found Oda a new home at the Bronx Zoo. He was allowed to wander around freely... I guess they thought that maybe he would feel more at home in the sort of like natural atmosphere, the outdoor setting. Now, this is sort of a slippery slope because yes. Oda be- started to become something of an attraction at the zoo himself. He was sort of hanging out with the animals and he was playing with the animals. And then he started hanging out sometimes inside the monkey house and he would play with them. He had a little bow and arrow set. He would sort of like do funny little tricks with the animals. Mm-hmm. Then he hung a hammock inside the monkey house.
1: Oh, so it's slow. He's slowly becoming an attraction himself, and a re- in and, yes, the monkey sure. house. Mm-hmm.
0: And on September eighth, nineteen oh six, visitors to the museum, when they went to the monkey house, saw a sign that was tacked up that said, "The African pygmy Otabenga, aged twenty-three years, height four feet eleven inches, weight hundred and three pounds." Brought from the Kasai River, Congo Free State, South Central Africa by Doctor Samuel P. Verner. Exhibited each afternoon during September.
1: So, I mean, I mean, so they, I mean, they. So fully recognize at that point that he is part of an exhibit in, in, in the, zoo, the monkey in the mo- house. Right, he okay. had become, he had become part of the exhibit. He, he wasn't just a mascot anymore.
0: Well, this caused a sensation. Thousands came to see it. The New York Times wrote about it. People were asking questions: Was he a boy? Was he a man? Uh, was he a monkey? Was he an animal? What was he? Why was he on display in the, in the monkey house? After the Times wrote about him, saying that he was the sort of most enjoyable aspect
1: of the zoo. <laughs> oh, great, thank you, Times. <laughs>
0: thousands of people came of course pushing their way in it caused also an uproar even though hornaday the the director thought that it was actually valuable for the zoo not only did it pack more people in he thought it was scientific valuable and he said you know when the history of the zoological park is written this incident will form its most amusing passage
1: <laughs> little did he know
0: Bowing to pressure, they finally took him out of the cage on September sixteenth, nineteen o six. So just like, I mean, this wasn't a very long period. He ended up moving um, into an orphanage for a few years, and then to the south, and he worked at a tobacco factory. And tragically, shot himself in the heart in nineteen sixteen. <gasps> oh, so yeah, so that is the the sad. And surreal story of Aravengo.
1: Well, Hornaday was certainly wrong about that. The only thing I can I can say now is to pick us pick ourselves back up, and take <laughs> a. I want to I want to take us on a very brisk. Quick tour of the park here, incorporating some of the more modern history parts of it. There are three entrances into the into the zoo. Most people, if you're taking a subway or a car, will take the two southern entrances. However, I'm we're going to start on the north entrance. Okay. Coming into the park. When the zoo first opened, it was free. No admission on the weekdays.
0: Boy, things have changed. Yes,
1: today it's a little pricey, I have to say. And you have to pay extra money to see some of the the, uh, more fancier exhibits. So just to to warn you, if you do go, visit the website and... Make sure you got the coinage in your pocket. So on the north, the north entrance, you actually are greeted by these gorgeous landmarked gates. It's called the Paul J. Rainey Gates. They are lovely sculptures of turtles, lions, and bears all over it. It was placed here in actually 1934. It was named for an African adventurer and a photographer who often went on safaris and, in fact, donated a polar bear called Silver King. And Silver King was a res- resident here. So... The sculptor of this gate was Paul Manship. Now, you may remember his name from Rockefeller Center podcast because his other famous piece of art in new york city was the prometheus at the rockefeller center skating rink so this is another example of his fine workmanship it's very gorgeous so you walk in and there's a formal court area this is the astor court that you were talking about the first thing you get to is actually the rockefeller fountain it has a unique lineage because it was actually built in 1872 and was built in como italy to actually, mm. to actually deliver fresh water to the people of the town. But everyone in the town hated it. They thought it was way too garish for... Um, because it had like nude females, had sea creatures, has a swan. Probably a little bit too ostentatious for a town just to get some water. Eventually, William Rockefeller bought it. He, he's the brother of the first Rockefeller, J.D. It's been in its present location since 1910. Now you go up the staircase and you have the Astor Court, which is this symmetrical cluster of buildings which you've discussed with that sea lion still in the middle, of course. Of some of these buildings that you had described earlier, the lion house is still there, but the lions moved out in 1941. Today, um, you can actually see the wildly popular Madagascar exhibit right there with the- It's wonderful. With the lemurs, it really, it actually is incredible. That's where the hissing cockroaches are. Right straight ahead of you is the old elephant house, which was built in 1908. It's now a zoo center. That's where they have the baby rhino. Over on the left, um, there's a curious building called The Natural Collection of Heads and Horns. This was <laughs> built in 1922. This is where the, the line of like preserving animals, right. um, can preservation doesn't necessarily mean preserving them live mm. and today it's an administration building so what you'll do from here is you'll turn left right through the administration buildings you'll see those bison which you need to check out They're they're right there and this is from that original herd You'll pass a building called the World of Birds. It's one of three structures in the zoo that's from this 1960s, 1970s, brutalist area. Um, but I have to say, I kind of like the brutalist structures here. Um, later, you'll have the you'll see the World of Darkness, and then the, the Aquatic Bird House up at the Astor Court is also from this brutalist era. There's also all of this interesting. You'll also know all this interesting fontage all over the park. Like the signs oh, yeah. are the signs are done in. And all sorts of different fonts from the 60s like each, each building has its own brand so you'll pass past the world of birds there's you'll have your second exit will be on your left with an amazing view of the Bronx River and an eco friendly bathroom is right there if you want to you know care for the environment while you go number one um, <laughs> But we'll but we will continue. Is that my only option? <laughs> no, I don't know. Well you'll we'll continue south now and you'll stop at the Tiger Mountain, which was a very popular exhibit from that was opened in two thousand three. You'll pass a bear habitat and the Himalayan highlands at the southernmost part of the zoo, so at the farthest point from the northern entrance, which I just discussed, is Jungle World. And if you take a subway, this is this is actually the first thing right. you see. This is
0: what I first encountered.
1: Notable here is the Wild Asia monorail, which is also kind of a dated throwback. It was opened in 1985. By the way, throughout the whole zoo, there's only about 150 areas to buy snacks and gifts. <laughs> um, it's like every other stop, there's a gift shop. So now we're going to head back north. You'll pass that world of darkness where that is where the Rocking Stone is and that world of darkness was, was was where the rocking stone restaurant used to be from there from the world of darkness you're going to turn slightly left and go to the samba village which this is kind of reminded me of Benga because it's like a small african village but of course you can buy curly fries and ice cream but then right behind what i find interesting is like right next to it's the baboon reserve which opened in 1990 and it's I mean, it's amazing. You can sit there and refresh yourself, have a drink, and sit and watch the baboons. Now, up on your left, um, you'll see uh, one of the more important parts of the zoo, which is the African Plains, which opened in 1941. This is where the lions went. They left the lion house and they... They came here to the African Plain. Also in this area, you'll find the Carter Giraffe Building. Um, The original one sat here in 1908, replaced with a new structure in 1982. Here's a fun fact. So the, the Carter Giraffe Building is named for James Walter Carter and his wife Margaret, philanthropists with an interest in giraffes. All giraffes that are born at the Bronx Zoo are named after James or Margaret. In fact, there was a new market that was just born there a couple years ago you 'll see Wait, a baby so there are only, one. only two names for the drafts they 'll like have a sub name so they can keep the, keep track of them but they're, yeah so basically they 're all technically they're named like popes they 're like popes except with long necks if, if you 've gone this far through the zoo, to me, the best part of the zoo the part that my favorite is the congo gorilla forest it uh, opened 1999 it was probably the most ambitious project that the zoo has ever taken on 35 million dollar environment for central african creatures 6.5 acres and probably the most aggressive conservation message i mean you you'll just be overloaded with how all these species are slowly dying off and what's happening to their original habitats. It's really moving, and of course, the star of the show are these 20 Western Lowland Gorillas that are that are here, and it's just you could sit there and watch them for hours. They're just beautiful, beautiful creatures. Leaving there, you walk back north. There's a Butterfly Garden, which that's where the, that's where the Great Apes House used to be, mm-hmm. but it was demolished in 1950. There'll be a Mouse House. There'll be that World of Reptiles with that original building from um, 1899, and then of course there's the Bug Carousel, which all the kids, the kiddies, like. And from there, it's just a short walk back up to the Astor Court. Wow. Greg, thank you for the tour. But this is not, of course, the only zoo that you can go to in New York City.
0: No, in fact, New York has five zoos and one aquarium. They are all managed by the Wildlife Conservation Society, except for the Staten Island Zoo and the aquarium. So that includes the Central Park Zoo, which we have a podcast on, started in the 1860s and renovated in 1934 and 1988. Mm-hmm. The Prospect Park Zoo, which opened in 1935 as a WPA project under Mr. Moses. Now it's called the Prospect Park Wildlife Conservation Center. Also, the Staten Island Zoo, which is on eight acres. It opened in 1936. Its original focus was on reptiles. Then the Queen's Zoo, which opened in 1968 in Flushing Meadows uh, in the site of the 1964 World's Fair, with a ribbon cutting by Mr. Robert Moses himself, the Queens Zoo focuses on animals original to the Americas, and it's the only of the city zoos to exhibit spectacled bears. <laughs> Spe- by which I'm not talking about be spectacle. Oh, okay.
1: No. I, th- I thought that would be very entertaining to watch.
0: <laughs> and the New York Aquarium, which we've managed before, which has had three locations: one, of course, down in Castle Clinton and Battery Park. Mm-hmm. One at the Bronx Zoo while the third was being built, it was a sort of interim location you no
1: know, I was I wondered I wonder where those creatures went between Castle Clinton and now you now I know they, they went they, out they to, went, to they, the, the Bronx, Bronx Zoo. Zoo. Okay. yeah then they went out to Coney Island so now before we go, I have to mention a few major names of animal names that have mm, been bold th- names. inhabitants of the Bronx Zoo in 1906 one of the more popular creatures uh, that that lived here was a jaguar by the name of Senor Lopez. Hmm. And Senor Lopez was the, actually the very first animal to move into the lion house, though, of course, he's not a lion. He was a very beautiful animal, and he actually became the fascination of an American sculptor by the name of Anne Hyde Huntington. And she ended up sculpting, uh, making sculptures of him. And many years later, these sculptures were donated to the zoo. So he sort of lives on today. And she's a very, you know, very well-known sculptor. So sculptress. So
0: Senor Lopez.
1: There's the sad tale, of course, of Gunda, the mad elephant. He was an Indian elephant. In 1912, there was this huge controversy because Hornaday thought he was sort of a dangerous animal. He, quote, said that the animal had murder in his eyes. So the... They kept him in chains because they were afraid he was going to attack people. In 1914, the zookeepers went out to lunch. They came back, and there was a mysterious poem that had been written on the wall of of Gunda's Pen. And the poem said the following, The times are out of joint. Oh, Lord, how long will fools rush in? Before this clamor ends, must I be shot to death to please the throngs? Lord, save me from my friends. Not so, bad for an elephant. Well, no one well, so no one knew who ever wrote that ever have ever figured out who wrote this poem. So of course like the, the legends said that the elephant himself had somehow scrawled this on the wall. In fact, in one year later, 1915, they had to shoot him because they thought he was too dangerous. There's Andy the orangutan who came to the zoo in 1948 and he was an overly intelligent orangutan, by the way. He actually had his own film. Um, he made a film called Andy's... With Ronald Reagan? No, he wasn't Bonzo, oh. but he was... I mean, he probably knew Bonzo. They're contemporaries. Uh, two other creatures I'm going to mention. One of them, Patty Cake, because we mentioned her in <laughs> yeah, Central we Park... We know Patty Cake. Yeah, we mentioned her in Central Park Zoo. Well, she currently lives at the Bronx Zoo. She's actually the matriarch of all, all the gorillas and has given birth to several of them. Wow. But, of course, it was this big custody battle between uh, the Central Park Zoo and the Bronx Zoo. And she did return to the Central... Park Zoo for a while, but now she's back at the Bronx Zoo and she's looking good, she's doing fine. And I should mention one more creature. Since I mentioned snow leopards earlier, I thought I should mention Leo the snow leopard. He's a new addition to the zoo. He came in 2006. This was a very highly publicized introduction because he was an orphaned snow lion from Pakistan. And so technically, he's on loan to the Bronx zoo. And there was a huge ceremony when he came. In fact, the, uh, the first lady of Pakistan actually came, brought him over. And when uh, was this? Um, 2006. And he's doing fine too. And you can find him in the Himalaya highlands area. So we are done monkeying around. I was (laughs) just
0: going to make the same pun, Greg. You, Beat me to it. <laughs> because we're not.
1: Because <laughs> we're so unoriginal anymore. Uh, mucking around with ah. the history of the Bronx Zoo. As, a, as now that I have my computer back, there will be pictures on the blog illustrating various creatures that have lived at the Bronx Zoo. That's BoweryBoysPodcast.com. I want to give a shout out to one, in fact one of our Facebook fans by the name of Moses, who did something very very wonderful for us, and I appreciate it so much. He did a like a Google map of all of all the locations of podcasts that we 've done of all one hundred uh, you know maybe one or two aren 't there because of course, where do you put peter Stuyvesant? Um, he 's but- everywhere. <laughs> But so uh, thank you so much. And you, sh- you should check it out. And it's like a, it's an open map. So, I mean, if there's other things you want to tag in the map. So can how can we find it. that? Um, it's, again, on the blog, Barry Boys podcast. And you there's a the, – well, I'll have that as a permanent link probably on the side. And you can also go to our Facebook page and look and find it as well.
0: So thank you so much for taking a tour of the history of the Bronx Zoo with us.
1: I will be back, I promise, in two weeks with another show. Have a great New York week whether you live here or not. See you real soon.